As we go to his word together, let's ask for his guidance. Let's pray. Eternal Father, who has spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past, but in these last days in your Son, the incarnate word, we pray that you will open the mouth of your servant to proclaim that word in the power of the Spirit. And we pray that this same spirit will open the hearts of its hearers here assembled to receive your holy gospel and write it on their hearts as your holy law, even as you have promised. All of this, gracious Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. And would you turn with me to uh, the letter of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series through the book of Philippians, and we've come to Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. Uh, So our reading for this morning will be Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 19 and reading through uh, the end of the chapter. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 19. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, it's not uncommon in letters that Paul has written for Paul to uh, contain personal words to the people he's writing, uh, to refer to particular people and individuals. Uh, We see that in a number of his letters. Uh, But often in Paul's letters, when we see these references to people, um, they kind of come as his final instructions. Um, usually in letters we read by Paul, he'll, he'll be talking about what he wants to talk about. He'll share the gospel. He'll derive some implications of the law, how to live, what he's written. And then at the end, he'll greet various people. He'll give various instructions. Um, and a lot of people said, have said none of that is out of the ordinary here in Philippians. It just seems to be maybe out of order in where it comes. Usually in Paul's letter, it comes at the end of the letter. Uh, But here, right smack in the middle, Paul makes these sort of personal instructions, and that's even led some commentators to say, this maybe seems a little out of place. Um, Of course, I I feel like with those commentators, they're just not reading very carefully. Um, There's a reason that these instructions come where they do in Paul's thinking. 
Um, As we've been going through the letter of Philippians, what have we seen Paul wanting to do? He wants to talk to them about what a life worthy of the gospel looks like and to encourage them to live a life worthy of the gospel, Uh, to do those things that, that show a gospel mentality, to live in humility, to count others more significant than yourselves, to have that same mind that Christ Jesus had in coming and giving himself uh, for us. And on all these encouragements to live lives worthy of the gospel, Paul is coming in a natural course of thinking to these two particular men who so exhibit that kind of life, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And Paul wants to share about them. And in the course of Paul sharing about them, of course, the Holy Spirit uses this opportunity to highlight the fact that Paul, too, is one of these kinds of men. Uh, That Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus all, in different ways, show that their lives are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They come to us as living examples of the things that Paul has been talking about that the Holy Spirit has wanted to guide us about and share with us. And so we can look to these men as living examples of what the gospel looks like. Um, And if we were tempted to say, well, how should we have the mind of Christ Jesus? How can we follow his example? Um, The Holy Spirit gives us three human beings like us that are examples of how this life can be lived and can be lived well. And so we're given in this, in this passage of Scripture these men as living examples. Living examples of what it is to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they show forth exactly the kinds of things that we've been hearing about and reading about to this point. They show selfless love. This passage about these men is chocked full of selfless love that they show for the church. Um, it's also filled with news of their sacrificial service the things that these men have been willing to do for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the church. So we want to think about their sacrificial service. And we'll see that it springs from a single focus. They're all able to do these things because they have one thing in mind. And we'll look at the focus that drives everything else. And so that's how we want to think about these living examples together this morning. Selfless love, sacrificial service, and a single focus. And we see that in the lives of each of these men. Um, We see all these different facets of selfless love that that this letter has been talking about exhibited in the lives of these men. The first thing we see is Paul's selfless love. Um, Even though Paul in no way means to make this about him, uh, the Holy Spirit makes this about him in the way he talks about his service. We know that Paul is writing from prison. He's in chains. We know that that in of itself is already sacrificial service that he's offered for the sake of the gospel. Um, But he reads and he's filled with love for the church. Um, that, that's, that comes across so clearly in these verses, how much Paul loves them and how much despite his chains and despite all that he's going through personally, how anxious he is to hear about how they are doing. Um, he talks about his, his anxiety to hear a firsthand report of how he's doing from someone who, who he can rely on to give an accurate report of how the church is doing. Um, and we, we see something of the urgency with which Paul wanted to hear from them, right? We, we read, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Um, quickly is what Paul wants to do. He wants to send Timothy as quickly as possible so that he can be cheered by news of them. 
Um, Or we read in verse 23, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how well it will go with me. Um, Immediately, um, at the first chance I get to send Timothy to you, I'm going to send him to you. Uh, That comes across in how much Paul wants to send him to them so that he can hear back how they're doing. Um, It shows just how much he cares about how much this church is doing, uh, that it's so much on his mind, so much in his thoughts. He just can't wait. Um, Maybe you've been waiting for urgent news of something and and someone's, you know, you want to get that news as quickly as you can. Um, In our day and age, information flows pretty quickly. Back then, it didn't flow quite so quickly. You can't get an email from Philippi or a text message about how things are going. You have to send somebody. And Paul's saying, I I can't wait to hear about you, so I'm so urgent to send him as quickly as possible so that I can get that news back. And, And why is he so urgent about that? Because he knows that that will encourage him more than anything else to hear a good report about the church. That will cheer him to hear that it's going well with them, Um, especially from someone like Timothy, who knows the church well, who can give a a good report of where the church started as he was there at the beginning, where the church has come by God's grace. And Paul knows that when I hear that news about you, I'm going to be so encouraged. I'm going to be so cheered. I'll be so excited to hear how things are going with you. Um, we see again how intimately connected Paul's joy is to the welfare of the church. Right? Of all the things that could, en- could encourage somebody who's sitting there chained between two Roman soldiers, he says the thing that will really encourage me is to hear that you're doing well. That's what I will be really excited to hear. Um, that's what will fill me with joy. That's why I'm so eager to send Timothy, because I know he's going to bring back a good word, and that's going to be so encouraging to me. That's going to be where all my joy will come from. We just see how much Paul loves this church, that he can derive such joy just from a report that they're doing well. That that will bring him so much joy, that will bring him so much encouragement. That can only happen for someone who loves the church as much as Paul loves the church. That his joy is so connected to their welfare. Um. And it should encourage us, I think, to, to have that same kind of love for the church, that we love the church so much that we're, just, we, we're eager to hear good news about the church. We rejoice whenever we hear that the church is doing well, that we just have that kind of love for Christ's church that Paul evidences here. It's entirely selfless. It's entirely directed at them. Uh, the joy is all in how they're doing. That's a great example of selfless love that Paul shows for the church, and we see that same kind of selfless love in Timothy. Um, Timothy is someone who loves the church. Paul says important things about Timothy, um, who was well known to the church in Philippi, who had again been there with Paul at the founding of the church in Acts 16. He was one of Paul's traveling companions who had gone there. They knew Timothy well, and Paul has wonderful things to say about Timothy. Um, the the chief thing he says in verse 20 is, "I have no one like him." There's no one as helpful to me as Timothy. And so when I think of someone to send to you, there's no better person I have than Timothy. There's no one like him. Another way of saying that is there's no one of a like soul um, like Timothy. There's no one I have like him who I can send, who not only is unique in his giftedness as as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, but who also will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. 
But that's also how Timothy is described to this church. He's someone who is genuinely concerned for your welfare. Um, Someone who worries about how you're doing. Um, Worries in a good sense. One commentator said this should be thought of as commendable distress. Right? There's a certain kind of worry that's not commendable. But Paul's saying, Timothy has a commendable concern for you. He's genuinely concerned for you. And that's, of course, what you want to see in ministers, right? In servants of the church, you want to see them have a genuine concern for what is going on in the church. Um, you know, as I went through the interview process with the, with the officers of this church, the stuff that goes on behind the scenes that not everyone sees, right? But we had these conversations, and what you could clearly see is that they have a genuine concern for you. That was one of the, the things that attracted me to taking this call, was that they had a genuine concern here for how the people of, the people of God are doing. It comes across in how they talk about you and how we pray for you. We see that genuine concern. That's what you want to see in a church. Someone who is genuinely concerned for how the saints of God are doing. Um, and that's, that's the kind of person Timothy is. He's, he's genuinely worried about the church. He's genuinely concerned about his church. He wants them to be doing well. And so Paul knows in sending him, he's sending someone who has that kind of love for the church. Um, he said, I have no one who's worrying about you the way Timothy worries about you. And it, again, is a testimony to how much Timothy loves the church, that he cares for them, uh, that he's genuinely worried about them, generally caring for them. And that kind of selfless love we see in Epaphroditus as well. Um, he has that kind of love for the church. He's also genuinely concerned for them. We see that in verse 26. Epaphroditus has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. He's been concerned for them all. Epaphroditus we don't know as well, but Epaphroditus was someone who was a member of the church in Philippi, who was a minister to the church in Philippi. So he's one of them. Right? Paul, Paul and Timothy are sort of traveling ministers. They're intimately connected with the work in Philippi as those who planted the church and continue to minister to the church from afar. But Epaphroditus is one of the church members. He's one of the people in the church, one of the ministers from the church in Philippi. He's one of their own. And Paul wants to write and say, and he's longing for you all. Um, he's away from you now, but he longs to be with you. Um, that intense yearning uh, for the people you love. Maybe if you've ever felt really homesick somewhere. Um, You know, if you were as a kid away at camp and were feeling particularly homesick, maybe when you had to eat in the cafeteria for the first time or something, you know, you you feel that homesickness. You you, you long to be home again. Um, Well, that's the kind of longing that Paul says Epaphroditus has for the congregation. He's longing for them. He's longing for all of them. Right? Paul, again, is trying to, as we've said before, wrap his arms around the whole congregation and say, Epaphroditus misses all of you. That's important for a church to hear as well, isn't it? That, that their minister loves all of them. Not just, you know, he misses a few of you, and a few of you he's glad to be away from. Um, that's not what Paul says, right? He says, no, he misses all of you. He longs to be with all of you. He's concerned for all of you. That's an encouraging thing to hear about the love this minister has for his church. He's longing for them all, and he's distressed that they've heard he's sick. 
right? Again, news doesn't travel very fast. So you hear somebody's sick and then you don't hear what's happened, um, how they're doing. And he wants them to know. They wants them to, to see him in the flesh and to know that he's doing well, that he's okay. He's anxious to remove that worry they have by being with them personally. We see in all of these men how they are just so loving for the church. They are so concerned for the church. They so desire and long to be with their people. And that's why we we ought to see them as living examples of how Christ loves the church. Right? They are doing exactly what Paul said godly people ought to do, reflect the mind of Christ that is in them. Right, and to show that kind of love that Christ shows for the church. Because what does Christ think of his church? His joy is bound up with our good. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about the Lord Jesus Christ? That just as Paul's joy was bound up with how the church is doing, so the Lord Jesus Christ, his joy is in the church. That we see that reflected in, in the, the heart of the king reflected in Psalm 16, uh, verse 3, where the king says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. That's the testimony of the king. That's the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ to us as his people. They are all my delight. They are my joy. Their welfare is intimately connected with my joy. And how, how wonderful it is to know that we have a Lord Jesus Christ, that there's no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for our welfare. There's no one like the Lord Jesus Christ who's genuinely concerned for our welfare. You know, the Belgian Confession is a wonderful statement of what it is that we believe. It has wonderful theology in it, but it's also very pastoral and has some wonderfully high glorious pastoral moments as it shares the truth of the gospel. In Article 26, it has one of my favorite passages because it's talking about the intercession and the mediation of Christ and encouraging God's people not to look for any other mediator, not to look for any other intercessor, not to have anything to do with saints or anything like that. And why? And the Belgian Confession says this, which is just so glorious. For neither in heaven nor among the creatures on earth is there anyone who loves us more than Jesus Christ does. Why do you not look for anyone else to mediate for you or intercede for you? Why do you look nowhere else than to Jesus Christ? Because he loves you more than anyone else loves you. There's no one in heaven or on earth among any creature that loves you as much as Jesus loves you. And it goes on to say, for who would love us more than he who gave his life for us even though we were his enemies? That's to fill God's people with joy and hope, to look, to know that we have a God who is genuinely concerned for us, who loves us more than anyone else can love us, who's concerned for us, and wants us above all to be with him where he is and to see his glory. That comes across, right, in these guys longing to be with God's people. And we're told in the scriptures that's, that's the Lord's desire for us. That's, that was his great prayer in John 17. Father, that they would be with me and see my glory. Isn't it a wonderful thing to know that, that the Lord's desire is for you to be with him? To see his glory and to participate 
in his glory to be as knitly to, united to him as he is to his Father and to the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful testimony of the love of Christ reflected in these men, and it's that selfless love that leads to sacrificial service. Just as it's the great love Jesus had that caused him to come and to give his lives, to give his life for his people that they may live, um, that also is the love that causes this great sacrificial service on the part of all these men for the church. Again, Paul is, is great in sacrificing for, for Christ. We see that by his chains, but we also see his sacrificial service in that he has these two wonderful men who are with him, and he's willing to send them away. Right? Think about how he describes Timothy again. He's, he's someone who is, there's no one like him. Uh, Paul says, you know his proven worth in, in verse 22. Um, that he has served with me as a son with a father. Um, right, as we have Christ Jesus in mind, that, that, that phrase impacts us in another way. He served as a son with his father. I don't have anyone like Timothy. Right? Timothy's don't grow on trees. Um, in fact, there's a lot more of people, he says in verse 21, who seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm surrounded by those kinds of people. You might remember in chapter 1, he said there are all kinds of those people who are preaching Christ out of selfish motives, hoping to afflict me in my chains. Paul has the, this wonderful servant, and he's willing to send him away. The same with Epaphroditus, right, that Paul describes in such lofty terms in verse 25. These, as one commentator said, these, these five titles of respect and companionship that Paul has that he piles on Epaphroditus. What kind of person is Epaphroditus? He's a brother. He's a fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. He's your messenger. And he's a minister to my need. Right, Paul has these two wonderful servants to him as he's in chains. And what is he willing to do? Send them away. Send them away so that they might be help to the church. And he's willing to do that with urgency, right? Um, I hope to do that soon. I hope to send them away quickly. Um, because I know it'll be good for you. Verse 28, I am the more eager to send him that you may rejoice in seeing him again. Right, this wonderful self-sacrifice on the part of the apostle to not want to hold on to these two friends when he's surrounded by a sea of enemies, but to even send them away because he knows it'll be good for the church. That's again more of his sacrificial service. We see that also in Timothy, right? He's willing to sacrifice for the sake of the church. Um, he's willing to engage in long and difficult travel, right? To go to bring a report to Paul means he's going to go to Philippi, find out how things are going, and then come back to Rome. Um, and, you know, in our modern terms, you might think, oh, a nice little trip from Italy to Greece and back again. What could be better, you know? Um, but Paul reminds us that these were difficult times to travel. Um, if you wanted to do this trip, you did it mostly on foot over a long overland journey, or you did it by a long overland journey and a long sea voyage. 
And as Paul says elsewhere in the Gospels, right, to do these kinds of trips meant you're exposing yourself to a lot of danger on the road. You're exposing yourself to a lot of danger at sea. Paul was shipwrecked several times. Um, it wasn't necessarily a safe thing to do. And so Timothy is, un- is willing to undertake this really long travel, to undertake this long, difficult road just so he can turn around and do it again, so he can pass messages back and forth between Paul and the church. And Timothy's willing to do that. Timothy's willing to do that travel. Um, and why is he willing to do it? Not just because he loves Paul, but to the church because he loves Paul. He knows it'll be an encouragement to the church when he arrives to bring word from Paul, and he knows that Paul will be encouraged when he comes back with word from the church. The selfless love that Timothy has is breeding this sacrificial service this willingness to do hard things for the sake of the church. Um, and we see that mo- maybe most of all in Epaphroditus, um, because as Paul says in verse 30, he risked his life for the sake of the gospel. That the, the trip for Epaphroditus from Philippi to Rome nearly cost him his life. He became really sick in his service. Um, and he is the minister to Paul's need, Paul says, um, and we learn later in chapter 4 of this book that it was Epaphroditus who brought a gift from the church in Philippi to Paul, probably an offering they'd taken to sustain Paul in his imprisonment. Um, back then, you had to pay for your own imprisonment. The government didn't pay for that. Um, you had to make do, and if you couldn't afford your imprisonment, you'd starve. And so this poor church, churches in Macedonia were poor churches, had sent a gift to Paul to sustain him. And Epaphroditus had been entrusted with this gift to bring it to Paul so that the church might minister to him in his need. And it's likely that Epaphroditus is the one who brings back this letter so that he can be your messenger. Um, And Paul says, you know, you should honor him because it nearly cost him his life. He got so sick that he nearly died to serve the church for the sake of the gospel. Um, And so we see that this selfless love that they have leads to this wonderful sacrificial service for the church. And there too, it's a perfect example, isn't it, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved so much that he gave so much for the church, uh, that he was willing to leave his position in glory and to come and to take the form of a servant and to humble himself even to death on a cross that he was willing to undertake that long and arduous journey from heaven to the cross and to the grave for the sake of his people. He didn't just risk his life for the church. He gave his life for the church that it might be a ransom for many. We see that sacrificial service that the love for God and his church calls him to. And how are they able to do this? Once again, when these examples are held out to us in Scripture of lives that are worthy of the gospel, I mean, sometimes we think of them as gospel superheroes. And we think, you know, these guys are to be commended, they're to be honored, as Paul says. And we sometimes look at them and say, I don't know that I could live like them. They must be like superheroes, you know, we're all big and muscled up and jacked and, you know, look good in spandex. And, you know, you look at them and you think, I can't be like that. And sometimes we do that in examples in Scripture. We look at them and we say, we can't be like that. I'm no Timothy. I'm no Epaphroditus. I'm certainly no Apostle Paul. 
But what the scriptures remind us is these guys were not superheroes. These guys were human beings like we are. And they had their problems and they had their difficulties and they had their limitations like we do. Right? One of, one of Paul's problems is people began to say of him, you know, his letters are pretty impressive, but then you meet the guy. And he's not impressive. You know, that was one of the problems he had with the Corinthian church. One of the criticisms he responds to in 2 Corinthians 10, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. Should be encouragement to seminary students who are learning to preach that that was Paul's sermon critique from the Corinthians. You know, his uh, presence, weak. They'd circle the weak category in presence. Um, speech, no account. Um, now, they're undervaluing him, certainly. Um, but he, he doesn't necessarily contest that in the next chapter. He says, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Um, it's not necessarily the case that he was the greatest preacher in the world. He wasn't necessarily very impressive. We know he was afflicted with a thorn in his side. Uh, very likely a physical ailment of some kind that he asked to be relieved of but was not. He was a person that struggled. He struggled like we struggle. He was not perfect. He had his limitations. And we don't know much about Epaphroditus, but the same was certainly true of Timothy. He was young. We know that. And Paul had, Paul had to give him you know, a variety of instructions from his youth and inexperience. Say, you know, now you're young, but don't let people despise you because you're young. Maybe that was a danger that Timothy had, to be a little too deferential. Paul had to say, look, just because you're young, don't let people despise you for being young. Um, you, know, you know, buck up your courage. We also know that Timothy was prone to anxiety. Um, he had a commendable distress for the church, but as we often realize from Scripture, our strengths can be our weaknesses. Um, if you're a good worrier in one sense, there's a danger you can be a bad worrier in another sense. Your strength can become a danger, and, and Timothy seems to be a little prone to anxiety. Uh, when Paul writes the church in, in Corinth to prepare for Timothy's coming, he says in 1 Corinthians 6.10, when Timothy comes, see to it that you put him at ease among you. Right? See to it that you put him at ease among you. He's young, he's maybe a little nervous. Be, be easy on him. And then we also know he's a little sickly, too. Right, Paul has to remind him in 1 Timothy 5.23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Right, Timothy was kind of a, a, a young, maybe timid, worrisome, sickly guy. These are not the portraits of gospel superheroes, is what I'm trying to say to you. Right, these are not massive men with massive shoulders that could do great things from the strength that was in them. And so what was it allowed, that allowed them to live as if they were gospel superheroes? What was their single focus? What is the one thing that they held before their eyes? The Lord Jesus Christ, that was before their eyes. His gospel, his church, that was what they focused on. And we know that because this little short section is filled with reflections on the hope that they have in Christ. 
you know, in, in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. His hope is rooted in Christ. Where is their trust? Verse 24, I trust in the Lord that I shortly will myself come also. Who do they look for? Mercy. Right? God had mercy on Epaphroditus and on me, Paul says, that I would not have sorrow on top of sorrow. Their minds and their hearts are fixed on Christ, remembering that God is in control in the Lord Jesus Christ of all that comes to pass, and that Christ is the one for whom they work. That he's in their mind, and because their minds are focused on him, he is the one that they work for in all that they do. Paul is an apostle for the church of Christ. Timothy, in verse 21, seeks the interests of Jesus Christ, serves the gospel of Christ, in verse 22. Epaphroditus is a fellow worker in Christ, a fellow soldier for Christ, um, fighting for the gospel alongside of Paul, laboring for the gospel, nearly dying for the work of Christ. It's that single focus that they have in the Christ they serve and his church and his gospel that allows them to do the things that they do. It all flows out of that. Um, and so often when we want to serve Christ and we want to do things for Christ, we, we begin by thinking, now what, what is in me? Where are my gifts? What can I do? And what this passage reminds us is actually the first thing you need to do is look out to Christ. To fix your eyes on him, to think about what he's done and what, how he loves his church and how he loves his gospel and the life that it brings to the world. And those, the love of those things is what all of this flows from. Right? It's that single focus on Christ that allows them to love as Christ loves and serve as they serve. And that's where it has to begin for us also. Um, to begin with our eyes fixed on Christ, on his glory, on his gospel, on his church, and then our lives will love and serve the things that he loves and the things that he gave his life to serve. And what is the wonderful outflow of these kinds of lives? Is there lives worthy of being received and welcomed and honored and sources of joy? Right? What, is, what does Paul say um, in, in verse 29? So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Um, what, is the, what is the outflow of people who live these kinds of lives? They are a joy to the church and they're to be received and welcomed and honored. Um, and there too, isn't that what we see in our Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't that how heaven received him at his coming, triumphant over all? That as he had loved and served and focused only on the task that his father had given him to do, what was his job to do in the world? What was his delight to do in the world? What my father has called me to do. The will of my father, that's what I'm here to do. It was that single focus that flowed out in love and service to God's people and he was received and honored in heaven. It's a wonderful picture of that in Revelation 5, in the breaking of the seals, 
when nobody can be found who can break the seals. And there's great weeping in heaven. And suddenly, what's the vision? Now here's one who's conquered. That's the vision of of the ascension of Jesus Christ from the other side, from the heavenward perspective, seeing the Lord come in his glory and in his triumph, who has overcome. And he's received and honored in glory. And the promise for God's people is that all who live these lives will be honored and glorified by their Father in heaven. That the angels rejoice to receive such people who have a single focus on Christ and his gospel and his church and who love him and who live for him. Um, These are not just the kind of people we should honor when we see them in the world, but these are the people we should strive to be by the help of the Spirit who love and who serve and who look to Christ. May he help us to be those kinds of people by his Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage and for these living examples of what it is to to serve you. We pray that we would look to them and see how they love, even as Jesus loved us, and follow their example of love, that we might also see a willingness to sacrificial service in the church, that we'd be willing to give ourselves for the sake of our neighbors, that we might help our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then may all of that flow from a single focus we have on, on our Lord Jesus Christ, on doing the things that he loves and serving as he would have us serve. And may we know that all those who do such things will be honored and received by you, not just in your church, but in your kingdom. And so, Lord, help us not to do these things for our own benefit, but for the benefit of our neighbor, and ultimately for the glory of our Lord who we love and who we seek to serve. Help us in these things, we pray, for we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.